This podcast deals with mature themes that are intended for an adult audience. The information in this show could be triggering and cause distress for some viewers. If you feel in distress, please seek out help. Please take care in listening. This is The Relationship Review with Delcy Martin. Welcome back to The Relationship Review. This is episode two of a two-part series on communicating in intimate relationships. If you've not listened to episode one yet, I encourage you to do that first and come back to this one for a more complete understanding of the process. So when we had left off, your partner had been invited into conversation. What's your next step? Let's revisit our case study for those like myself who may not remember very well. Tanya, age 35, and Dina, also age 35, have been in a relationship for two years. They've always had good communication in their relationship until it came to talking about money. Tanya is upset at the amount of money Dina spends when she goes to the bookstore which she reports is a lot. She manages a lot of their finances and is noticing that they're having a harder time making ends meet since the pandemic. She feels that Dina is being irresponsible. She wants to talk to Dina about their financial situation, but every time she tries, Dina becomes very anxious, high-strung, and makes excuses not to engage in the conversation, stating, you know I don't like money stuff. Dina says that when Tanya approaches her, it's after she reads the credit card statement and she's already upset. She feels that Tanya is overly confrontational when it comes to the subject of money and fears talking about money with Tanya because she doesn't want to make her more angry. So on to step three, having the conversation and troubleshooting. When you're entering the conversation, make sure that you're mindfully in it. We have a natural tendency to be lost in our heads, and this is not something that easily switches off during a conversation. For a lot of people, they're 80% in the conversation and the rest of it they're off in their head, usually anticipating what they're going to say next. Being mindfully in the conversation is ensuring that your full attention is with your partner. After you've accepted the invitation into conversation, your only job is to listen to your partner fully and completely, not to interject, to just let them get what they need out. Going back to mindfulness practice from earlier, here's an excellent, an excellent use of mindfulness during conversation. When your partner is speaking, focus all your attention on them and hear what they're saying. Your brain will naturally wander from them. This is totally normal. It does not mean that you're a bad listener. Acknowledge it and gently draw your attention back to the conversation. This may need to happen a number of times and over a number of conversations before it becomes easier. This is an exercise I would recommend Tanya and Dina practice often. Here's how you can show with your body and your voice that you're listening. Do tilt your body slightly toward the person who's talking. Do not cross your arms or curl your body into itself. Do smile and offer minimal encouragers by nodding your head or saying, mm-hmm, as your partner talks. When your partner is done talking, repeat back to them what they've said to you and ask if you understood correctly. 
when stating your position, do this in as clear and as detailed a way as possible. If your partner has a habit of interrupting or talking over you, like I do, unfortunately, don't be afraid to ask for silence until you're finished speaking. I always appreciate when my partner does that with me. One of the cognitive distortions we talked about earlier is mind reading. It applies here too. We incorrectly assume that our partners know what we mean when we say something, or that they should be able to interpret us with minimal content because we're supposed to know each other well being in an intimate relationship. Go into conversation assuming that your partner knows nothing about your intentions and describe them as such. Remember, all your partner is receiving when you speak to them are your words. They're left to interpret the emotions and the underlying meanings behind them. Tanya might state her position like this. I'm feeling really worried about money right now. Our finances are not in a good state, and I'd like us to consider a budget. I feel that there are places we could both cut back, and I'd like to talk this through with you. As you can see, the more descriptive you are, the less there is to interpret. Using emotionally descriptive language triggers the empathy response system in your partner, and they'll be more attuned to what you're saying. This is sometimes subconscious. If Dina shares with Tanya that she's scared of Tanya's anger, this will trigger her empathetic response system, and she's going to be more likely to remember about Tanya's fear, and Dina's fear, sorry, and change her behavior the next time a discussion occurs. One study on mindfulness and empathy found that participants who participated in an eight-week mindfulness practice program reported increased levels of empathy at the end of the program. So, regularly practicing mindfulness can actually make your ability to feel empathy stronger and can add to the maintenance of the relationship. If you're interested in more information about mindfulness, please check out our Facebook page where I posted some exercises. This information I'm giving you isn't about walking on eggshells when speaking to your partner. I don't want your caution in talking to your partner to be interpreted as this. I'm asking you to proceed with caution because this conversation is about maximizing the benefits to you during the conversation so no one is misunderstood. Studies have shown that if your partner has emotionally disconnected or distanced themselves from you, they're going to have a harder time reading your emotions and nonverbal body language. Studies also show that anxiously attached individuals, like Dina, are more likely to interpret neutral facial expressions and tones as negative. Making sure you're as descriptive as possible will help make your nonverbal and emotional language easier to understand. The media has been very good at conveying the importance of using I statements, but it's gained the reputation for being a bit hokey. It does actually work though. In conversation, you statements should actually be avoided. Using the word you feels accusatory and can activate the fight, flight, free system. Instead, use I statements, which puts the responsibility for how you feel back to yourself and feels less threatening. You notice that Tanya did this earlier when she said, I'm feeling really worried about money right now. Our finances are not in a good state, and I would like us to consider a budget. The other thing she does very well is align the couple against the problem. Our financial troubles and us consider a budget 
is against the problem. If Tanya were to say, I feel that you do, this is not a good replacement. If Tanya were to say, I feel that you do everything you can to spend money at the bookstore, she'd be using the words, I feel, but the second those words you do come into play, the message is now accusatory and Dina's walls come up. Don't hold back in saying what your partner is doing well or if they've made good points, especially during a tenuous conversation. Admit when you're wrong. The goal of a discussion is not to win. The goal of a conversation is to tackle the topic together and win by finding a solution that maximizes happiness for both of you. If you're going into a conversation with the goal of winning, you're already making it a divided issue rather than a shared tackling of said issue as a team. Tanya could walk into the discussion with this view that it's her against Dina. She'll have the goal of winning. Instead, a healthier view of the situation is to look at it as Tanya and Dina against their financial struggles. See what I mean? They're a team against the problem. Studies have found that anxiously attached individuals are less likely to assert themselves in a conversation and have more worries about their partner being upset than about expressing themselves. They're more likely to consider how a conversation could disrupt the relationship, where a securely attached person will consider how the conversation could benefit the relationship. This is Ardina in a nutshell. Prior to this, she may have had not been asserting herself at all in discussions about their finances. She likely has a lot of difficulty seeing the benefit of regular financial discussions where Tanya, who's a securely attached, or at least to our knowledge, sees this as an opportunity for growth. These tendencies can be frustrating for the partner of the individual with anxious or avoidant attachment, who can become overly accommodating to their partners and then tire of the whole situation and eventually withdraw. One of the articles I reviewed gave some really great advice. It might be helpful for avoidant individuals and their partners to be aware that their goal in a conversation is going to be to avoid closeness and avoid being put in a situation where they feel they must be submissive. It can also be helpful for an anxiously attached individual and their partner to realize that much like the inconsistent parenting styles they were exposed to in childhood, an anxious person's goals in a conversation will vary dramatically between asserting themselves which, with approach behavior and completely withdrawing avoidance behavior. At times, they'll do and say whatever they need to to avoid becoming more distant from their partner and to avoid being put in a position of submission. You aren't bound by your attachment style. You can overcome it. The first step is by recognizing it. Individuals can learn to break these patterns by taking more risks in asserting themselves during the relationship. This is very difficult and should always be done at your own pace. Dina is not bound by her anxious attachment style. When she's able to recognize her tendencies that come as a result of this attachment style, she'll be more cognizant of them during discussion and work to overcome them. Although conversations that are critical to the relationship should take place in person if at all possible, I do have some thoughts specific to conversations that occur between partners online through video chat or message over text message and over the phone. 
Online dating is going to give you access to your partner's words, tone, facial expression, and body language, as long as you're doing a video chat. You and your partner are each responsible for maintaining the comfort, privacy, and security of your respective spaces. Texting is a whole other thing. The only thing you have are the words. That's it. Thankfully, we have these beautiful things called emoticons. Those smiley faces, for those of us older generation who may not know this world, to help us convey our emotions. Well, that's until you have been texting a whole string of emoticons that involve various fruits, tiny people, and letters, and this means something in a teenage language, and then you don't even have the words. Don't be afraid to make your text detailed with words. Don't be afraid to make use of the emoticons, especially if you think your message could be misinterpreted, to have all a different to have a different emotion attached. Before sending a message, consider how will how will what I'm sending be interpreted by the receiver? And what are all the possible ways it could be interpreted? If you send a text message and believe your emotion behind it was misinterpreted, don't be afraid to tell your partner directly what you're concerned about. The only way you can know how your message was received is to ask. Over the phone, you get the words and the tone. It's something, but it's still not a whole lot to go on and can leave a lot to interpretation. First, consider your partner's tone and if it matches the words which are being said to you. Example, I'm fine. Okay, in a terse tone. If you notice a difference, don't be afraid to point this out to your partner. You could say something like, you're saying you're fine, but I noticed that your voice went upward and then you became very quiet after. I'd really like you to tell me more about what you're feeling right now. Don't be afraid of silence. Without seeing facial expressions, it's really hard to tell if silence means if your partner's upset, they've had a mental lapse and forgotten everything you've just said, if they've passed out, or if they've fallen asleep. Don't worry. In reality, the silence likely means that your partner is trying to process what you've said to them and is gathering their thoughts. It's a lot harder to process something when you have less information, meaning that it'll be harder to process your partner's message without their facial and body expressions to go with it, so it may take you a bit longer to respond. If you have a partner that processes and responds rapidly over the phone, and then they suddenly go silent, you may be dealing with one of the form of things. We talked earlier about the fight-flight-freeze system and what it looks like when it's activated. In reality, it can present differently for everyone. When this system is activated for some, they feel heart palpitations, a rising heat into their face, a shakiness, a wavering in their voice, or for many like myself, a desire to cry. Being one of those people that cries when they're angry, anxious, agitated, hangry, and even happy is so incredibly annoying. I feel like as soon as I start to cry, the person I'm talking to stops taking me seriously or sees me as a child to comfort. One of my friends gave me some really good advice about this, and I'd really like to pass this on to you. She said, when you cry during a conversation, you're presenting your authentic you. You're sharing the full impact of the situation on your emotions. People sometimes need to fully feel the full impact of your emotions because before they can fully understand the impact of their words or the importance of the topic to you. Kind of nice. 
anyway, when this fight, flight, freeze system is activated, our ability to think rationally and participate fully in conversation is diminished. This highlights the importance of taking a timeout. A lot of research suggests that it takes 20 minutes for the stress hormones to even out in your brain. If you get to the point where you're feeling emotionally overwhelmed, don't be afraid to ask for a break. The best strategy is actually to agree before the conversation the timeouts are important. So when the conflict gets to the point where it could be damaging to either partner physically or mentally, it's time to take a time out. Don't use timeouts as an avoidance system. You need to return to the conversation at some point and, repeat, and, reach, and reach a resolution or the same pattern of conversation is going to continue to repeat itself. Discussion between Tanya and Dina might end up heated. It's up to one of them to recognize it. Recognize it's heated and say, I think we're both feeling overwhelmed right now and we should take a break. The couple will hopefully have previously agreed to breaks when this is said, whether they feel like they need a break or not, and flow into this. Obviously, it's not going to be that smooth the first couple of times, but that's going to come with practice. <laughs> I'm a therapist that doesn't like to be in conflict. Honestly, it's hilarious. Well, Delcy, you might say, who actually likes being in conflict? I've had a lot of friends over the years, and I say this with the utmost love for these humans and their profession, but lawyers love conflict. If someone raises their hand and says, I have an opinion, my lawyer friends are on that human as fast as a fruit fly is on the chunk of banana that my daughter shoved under the couch last month. I've had one friend describe it to me as an adrenaline rush from the feeling of argument. Let's get this straight. I derive less than zero joy in my personal life from conflict, conflict in all its forms. Conflict happens and my inner self is ready to peace out. And then I have like John freaking Gottman on one shoulder and I've got my husband on the other shoulder, both whispering to me, Delcy, conflict is normal. Del conflict is healthy and natural. <laughs> All joking aside, I agree with them completely. And I can only picture my inner self sulking as I say this, but conflict is natural and it can be an opportunity to strengthen a relationship. A conflict does not mean the end of a relationship. The healthiest and longest term relationships out there are ones that have conflict. The unhealthiest relationships also have conflict. How that conflict is managed and ensuring that no one comes out of it hurt or offended is what matters most. I'm a lot like Dina when it comes to my worries around conflict and I'm actively working on them every day and improving with time. I'd recommend Dina continue to work on hers and also practice forgiveness with herself when the work and the outcomes aren't perfect. Finally, step four, following up after the conversation. A lot of marital, a lot of marital therapists place a strong emphasis on problem solving with the idea that if the problem isn't solved, then a therapy hasn't worked. I've mentioned John Gottman in a previous episode, but in case you don't remember, he's one of the gurus of marital therapy and could predict with over 90% certainty if a couple would get divorced. He's also one of my professional crushes. I have two. Brene Brown is my other. John Gottman is my professional crush. Yeah. Anyway, 
In his studies, he found that even the strongest marriages, only a few issues get solved. Most marriage problems don't get solved and instead turn into perpetual issues. Let me say that again. Even in the strongest marriages, only a few issues get solved. Most marital, most marital problems don't get solved and instead turn into perpetual issues. These are the big ones, the trigger points in your relationship that seem to come up over and over again. Gottman feels, and I tend to agree, that what's important with perpetual issues is how they're talked about rather than their ability to get solved. Does the couple meet in dialogue to discuss them together, or do they go to what's called gridlock every time? Imagine two rams butting heads constantly pushing each other back and forth without moving anywhere. This is what happens when a perpetual problem is met with the same wall every time it's discussed. When following up after the conversation, if it doesn't seem like everything has been resolved, you might be dealing with a perpetual problem. So next time it comes up, you can actively work on improving the exchange with your partner. A lot of the residual pain that couples feel from serious discussions is not the result of the discussion, but if there's repair attempts made afterward. Not all conversations are going to go well, no matter how good you think you are at having the conversation with your partner. Don't wait for your partner to make the first move in talking to you after a serious discussion. Take the reins because they could very likely be, wake be waiting on you to make that exact same move. If you're always the one to make the first move, I get that this can be frustrating, but the positive benefits of taking this action for your relationship is very admirable. Make sure your partner is in a good space before approaching them. Again, a minimum of 20 minutes after the conversation is taking place, if it got heated. When discussing the conversation, take responsibility for the things you may not have done well in it and highlight what your partner did well. This will hopefully cue your partner to do the same for you. I want to caution you on labeling your conversation as an overall success or an overall failure. There's no successful or failed conversations. There's just conversations. And some have elements that are more favorable. Listen, some of the goals in a serious relationship is to do life together, plan life together, reach goals together, and bear witness to your loved one's accomplishments and development. We choose to pair with someone indefinitely because of these goals. If you're each doing your lives without meeting in the middle for conversation, for planning and discussions, then you may be missing some of the biggest benefits that a serious relationship has to offer. Having your own passions and positions in life is essential to a healthy relationship. But when you're meeting with your partner in discussion, know when to compromise and strive to compromise as often as possible. I want to thank you for listening and for being here with me today and for these last two episodes on communication. I really hope you found something that you can take with you and use in your everyday life. And I hope that you find joy in this podcast. I hope you find joy in your relationships. And I hope you find peace within yourself knowing that you are doing a great job of being you, you're doing a great job 
of being a partner. And I just want you to take a moment, sit with that and give yourself some gratitude and appreciation. Thank you so much and take good care. <laughs>